Welcome to Season 6 of Poetry Centered, the podcast that brings you the voices of poets from VOCA, the online archive of recorded poetry readings housed at the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Each episode brings you a selection of recordings from between 1963 and today, selected and introduced by a contemporary poet. I'm Julie Swarstad Johnson, here to welcome you on behalf of the Poetry Center. We are beyond excited to kick off this new season with an episode hosted by Juan Felipe Herrera, distinguished poet, performer, teacher, and activist, who served as his 21st U.S. Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2017. He's the author of 30 books, including collections of poetry, prose, short stories, young adult novels, and children's books. His most recent poetry collection is Every Day We Get More Illegal, published in 2020. And, fun fact, a poem of his is currently in space, inscribed aboard NASA's Lucy spacecraft, which is headed to the Trojan asteroids. In this episode, Juan Felipe shares recordings that approach the question, what is poetry? What does it do? He crafts an expansive answer to this question through poems by Marvin Bell, Denise Levertov, and Lorna D. Cervantes, asserting that poems carry the rhythms of life, the force and forms of resistance, and a vision of humanity and compassion coupled with action. Juan Felipe, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hello, everyone. This is Juan Felipe Herrera, recording from Fresno, California, here in my sunny studio. I want to introduce Marvin Bell's poem called The Poem, again, written by Marvin Bell. And it's kind of a kind of title Marvin uh, would write. Uh, he's very playful. He was very playful and uh, very quick and uh, funny and very serious. I say this uh, because I met him in 1988 uh, when I was uh, admitted and coming in. Uh, to be part of the first workshop I ever took with Marvin Bell at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. So uh, my family and I, we went, my two children and my wife Margarita, and there we were. And I loved that city. I loved its four seasons, and I loved the environment and the trees and the sun and the snow and the rain, the real rain, the big, thick rain, and the friendliness. And going to... uh, into the MFA program and having Marvin Bell as my first uh, professor, uh, mentor, teacher, and poet. Uh, so, so that's why I say he was very friendly and playful and fast thinking and could go through your poem uh, almost like a shredding, <laughs> a shredding lettuce, uh, but he didn't shred. He, he just talked about the rhythms as he read the poem out loud to you and he talked about the meter as he read it out loud to you and he gave you a little bit of what it was about for him, which is nice, to you. And I had a great group. Uh, Matt, uh, Matthew Lipman was one of the students. As, um, you know, I forget the rest of the names. I thought Stacy Bush, I'm not sure. Uh, a good group, you know. We all went to the mill, the tavern, where poets went, and the fiction writers went to uh, the uh, Foxhead. And uh, if you were caught in either one and not belonging there, then 
then it wasn't going to be too too social for you. Uh, the poem by Marvin Bell. You know, it reads, it's something that I'd like you to look at and listen for. It reads very, uh, in a, it's in a, in, a, in a frame of simplicity. Uh, the poem perhaps is talking to the reader, or perhaps it's talking to the poet. It's, it could be seen as a conversation between the poem and the poet, but where the poem is doing the talk and is kind of revealing itself. There's a, re- a set of revelations in this poem, or perhaps there are a set of en- enlightenments. I find this poem almost like a Zen poem. It presents uh, the question of uh, perception, uh, the question of permanence, uh, the question of uh, emptiness, of that which cannot be grasped and yet uh, can be uh, acted upon. And it presents uh, uh, the question of life. And I want you to think about, or uh, not necessarily right now, but as you listen to the poem, you're going to be, uh, you're going to notice the word life, uh, that sign, the life sign appear at one after the other, one time after the other. Almost a, a life rhythm is going to take place in this piece called the poem. And that's, that's, that, I think, is where the poem really uh, presents uh, a case to you, a Zen case, uh, different kinds of what, uh, different kinds of lifeness, perhaps, or perhaps different tasks regarding life. Uh, and at one point, he mentions life as a form. And I think that's one of the key phrases here for us. Uh, you may find another phrase that's the key phrase. Is uh, uh, life a form, uh, or is it formless? Is it finite, or is it infinite? He does talk about death, and he does talk about form. And he, in his later years and last years, Marvin wrote quite a number of a uh, large, large set of poems called, uh, I believe, the Dead Man's, the Dead Man's Poems where the dead man speaks, and the way the dead man writes these poems. And this is a little uh, prophetic, uh, written much earlier in November 3rd, uh, recorded on November 3rd, 1977. Uh, And he passed away uh, last year. So he was already thinking about life as formless and as having a form and perhaps it's both and he he calls it the poem maybe the poem is this thing called life it has form, it has forms and it is also as the, this, as the poem uh, seems to say uh, formlessness and and so it's a very, the lines are very short. And the discussion, the poem, the text, the page is also also short. And yet the thinking, the meanings, the movement of the thinking, the movement of thought, uh, the notion of, of perception, uh, the notion of life, 
he mentioned he mentions bones and becoming so just that line bones and becoming those are three words just those three words which Marvin Bell was very adept at he would say let me make a parenthesis he would say at the end of the poem it's really just about three words he would say you can boil down a poem into three words and I thought that was kind of funny and interesting. Three words. He said, yeah, maybe it says, I am hungry. Or, where are you? Or, I am lost. Or, what is violence? Or, what's going on? Three words. He says, you can boil a poem down into three words. So, there's three words in this poem that stand out quite a bit, too, in addition to all the other words. And, and, Bones to becoming, or bones and becoming. And you see, uh, what begins to appear here in this poem is the poem as philosophical, a philosophical treatise, or a philosophical case, as it would be said in Zen Buddhism, a case, a, a paradox that you and I are tasked to solve. And so, so, so Marvin Bell was that poet, a philosophical, playful poet. If you're a philosopher, you most likely will be playful because you will think about life, you will think about death, you will think about being, you will think about becoming, you will think about time, you will think about timelessness, you will think about meaning and meaninglessness and existence, and you will most likely will have to play with those big spheres that we all have to contend with in our lives and in life itself for all beings. So play is most likely necessary. We don't think of philosophers that way or of philosophy that way, but it is. It does have an element of playfulness so you can actually unravel these big questions and and the the directions that the poem gives us this is tell them to stop looking there's a line in the poem tell them to stop looking it's almost like there's a foolishness right the the poet is being seen as being a bit foolish Tell them to stop looking. Uh, looking for what? Just stop looking. Wasting time. Being foolish. Being a poet. So there's, there's, so these are all, almost every line is a philosophical uh, task for the reader, for the listener, for you and me. And I didn't know I, I enjoyed uh, Marvin Bell's thinking so much as I do now, reading this poem. He was always like this. He was playful and giggling, giggling. then he was super serious at the same time. And now that I see this poem, I can see what he was all about in a way. And he predicts many things as well. I guess one last note. Uh, 
our two last notes. He he was he did he disliked what he called chopped prose. <laughs> you know how we write something and it's like a paragraph, we tell a story and we call it a poem and we talk about our toe or whatever, you know, yesterday and it's a long, you know, it's a long set of lines and phrases and sentences and we describe something and then we say it's poem on my toes <laughs> or poem about yesterday and we think it's a poem. Oh, no, 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 no. And we divide it into, you know, four pieces, you know, four little stanzas, let me call it a poem. And for Marvin, that's called chopped prose. He didn't li like chopped prose because it didn't have the philosophy. It didn't have, it didn't have movement. It didn't have thought. It didn't have contradictions of thought. It didn't have questions. You know, it didn't have form and formlessness. And I kind of, I agree with him. You know, I agree with him even though I'm kind of leaning towards that chopped prose these days. But now that I read this poem, I may just keep on going with Marvin. Uh, he was very uh, heated also, very hot-blooded. He was a jogger and a runner. And uh, he called me up one time and said, Juan, why didn't you come to, to the workshop today? Oh, oh, I said, oh, Marvin, Marvin, I, uh, I, uh, I just... I kind of lost my place. I uh, thought it was time and it was late. He said, well, you, you better come to the workshop. I said, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. And so he, he had a very close relationship with all of us. And he wanted us to be there in his dojo. Uh, so I, uh, I invite you to this poem. I invite you to, to, to consider and reflect as a philosopher on this poem as philosophers, and of each line as a teaching and as a paradox and as a uh, task that Marvin Bell presents to you and to the poem. And perhaps you want to look up Lu Qi, the third century uh, Chinese uh, literary scholar who uh, had an essay called, um, has an essay called uh, The Five Delights of literature and just the title itself is fabulous the notion of delight and literature and one of those delights is to task the void to task the void and that in itself is is is, is a challenge what does it mean to task the void i think that's that's what this poem is doing um, tasking that which is impossible to grasp Tasking what is called in Buddhism emptiness. Tasking that which is connected to everything, to everything, to everything, to everything. A very popular term all of a sudden these days. Uh, atomically, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in terms of quantum theory, it's true. Everything is subatomic particles. Um, that's, a good, that's a good platform. For the moment, notice this poem, poem listen to it as a, as, a, as a task, as tasking the void. Just to give you one more philosophical challenge. Enjoy the poem as it's written. Enjoy the very direct language. Enjoy uh, Marvin Bell's easy voice, uh, his humor and voice. Uh, enjoy uh, the development of the, of the poem. Most of all, what I see as standing out 
are the uh, the tasks, uh, the questions about life, different kinds of life forms, and life thoughts, and life perceptions, and the lines and phrases, the short lines and thin phrases that carry so much weight. Let us thank Marvin Bell, and let us enjoy his words, his thoughts, and thinking, and mind in this poem. The title of this is uh, The Poem. Would you like me more if I were a woman? Would you treat me better were I a man? I'm just words, no, not words even, just marks on a page. Tokens of what? Oh, you know. Then tell them, will you? Tell them to stop looking for me. Tell them I never left home. Tell them, if you must, that I never left my body. Unlike so many others, I had no wings, just shoulders. I was like the snow bunting of stout build but moderate size. Better make that exceedingly moderate size. I neither blessed nor cursed, but that the good suffered, and evil closed the books in triumph. I cured no one. When I died, my bones turned to dust, not diamonds. At best, a tooth or two became coal. How long it took. You would have liked me then, had you been alive still. Had you survived the silliness of the self, you would have treated me better. I never lied to you once I had grown up. When X told you you were wonderful, I said only that you existed. When Y said that you were awful, I said only that life continues. I did not mean a life like yours, not life so proud to be life, not life so conscious of life, not life reduced to this life or that life, not life as something to see or own, not life as a form of life which wants wings it doesn't have, and a skeleton of jewels, not this one of bones and becoming. How perfect are my words now in your absence, ungainly yet mild perhaps, taking the place of no field, offering neither to stand in the place of a tree, nor where the water was, neither under your heel nor floating, just gradually appearing, gainless and insubstantial, near you as always, asking you to dance. Well, let's get to Denise Levertov, an amazing poet, uh, passed away in the late 90s. And her poem is, The Day the Audience Walked Out on Me and Why. It's kind of easy to say that title and uh, to just note that Denise Levertov passed away in the late 90s. And yet she was a towering figure. Uh, people at times see her poetry as plain talk and easy, easy writing, or they have seen her as a protest poet or a political poet. This is something that she had to struggle against as a woman, as a writer, as a poet, and as a reader on stage. All those, and and perhaps even more, the fact that she was white and wrote about uh, massacres 
where people of color were killed. And all those that appear to be contradictions or conflicts were not conflicts or contradictions for Denise Levertov. And this poem encapsulates so much of who she was, of the stage she had reached in her life, the kind of freedom she finally felt being pulled back uh, by her mentor for being a political poet of uh, social engagement and this wasn't the right thing for her to do. Or from her earlier childhood where she was uh, alone and had to meet out her life, carve it out uh, step by step. And for us, it's going to be a question and many questions in this poem, actually. Perhaps it is a story of questions, or perhaps it's a poem of questions, or a memoir, or an analysis, or a statement. Which one? Or perhaps it's a psalm. So all those are just shifting and rotating and almost tectonic in this uh, piece. Uh, it seems like it's very basic, but what is it? Or maybe that's something we don't need to think about. Perhaps we just listen and see and, and drink what nectars and elixirs are in this text. I think Denise Levertov brings so much to us. And one simple poem, quote-unquote simple, perhaps simplicity is better. I kind of ran into Denise Levertov in uh, 1977, not personally, but into her many books on the bottom of a bookshelf at Stanford University's bookstore. I had just walked in as a student, 1977. There I was just, you know, looking at books and picking at books and there was a big giant poster up on the wall of Yevtushenko, a great Russian poet. And here was Denise Levertov, uh, of uh, also Russian uh, ancestors. And she was also at Stanford. But I did not know that. I wish I would have known that. She was teaching in the English department. So for us, it's the question of uh, what a poem can contain. And how is it written? And for Denise, uh, life itself, uh, the world of society, the world of what we call the planet, was primary. Uh, one of her quotes is, if you're what you eat, then one's poems are what one does. And this takes us to uh, kind of the life we live. Experience, experience, society, interaction, action, social response, human beings, war and peace, violence, all this. These are major concerns. Of course, her concerns were also spiritual, uh, especially in her later years. Her concerns were also regarding nature and and life in all its forms. I guess that's what it 
That's what it was. Life in all its forms. And guess what? Humanity. Human beings. Isn't that a beautiful set of concerns? Isn't that what we're all about? And I find a lot of affinity with Denise Levertov because I've come to that point. In a way, I began with that point back in the uh, late 60s when we were talking about Chicano literature and Chicano poetry. I don't think we used the word literature <laughs> at that point, but we did use the word poetry, and we used the word floricanto, flower and song, the celebration of life itself through this thing called poetry. Flor and then canto, song, flower song, which is two words to mean one thing, and many more. So life, poetry, experience, people, humanity, war and peace, and response. She saw the poem as perhaps, this is for you to think about as you hear her poem, the day the audience walked out on me and why. Perhaps once you listen to that, as you listen to it, uh, is it a response or is it just a poem? Or is it a response? What kind of response can a poem be? And you may find that. You, I think you are going to find this, this question, this question unfurl many times in this one poem. Of course, this is during the civil rights uh, moment, uh, 60s, of course, and early 70s, and perhaps to this very day. It's kind of here again and being fought against and for again. Or is this poem a journal? Or is this poem a, uh, uh, a psalm, like I said earlier? Or is it a testimonial, a testimony for us? And those are just the first questions, I think, to consider in this poem. Because there's also the question of audience, the listener. And there's also a question of religion. It takes place in a chapel. And it's also a question of spirituality or of belief systems because it takes place in a chapel. And there's an audience. And audiences in chapels and churches are not really audiences. They're kind of disciples. Or, or, or followers, or believers. So it has to be a question, it has to do in some manner with religion and belief systems. And what kind of belief system, or is there one in this poem? That's something for us to think about as well. So you can see already uh, how weighty and how much is in this poem, and yet have a title. So, uh, so let's call it ordinary, so ordinary and yet so deep and multi-layered. And I guess that's another issue, another ingredient are the layers of this poem, how it begins, how it develops, and how it ends. And all those three are big in this poem, and some are very quick movements. Uh, very, the very first one, the very first few lines have to do with uh, uh, what she calls uh, uh, antiphonal, uh, an antiphonal reading. It was just... She, her, her presentation takes place after a psalm has been read. A psalm then that involves call, call and response, that involves response from the audience. So this poem is also perhaps as, deals with this phenomenon called 
social response. She's going to speak of social response in this poem, and she begins by speaking about perhaps social response within a religious arena, which is the chapel. And by the end of the poem, she makes another statement about social response within a religious structure, a chapel. And the notion of color is going to play in this poem as well. So, you see, there's so many ingredients, there's so many uh, uh, atomic structures, we can call them that, and this piece. And we were talking about the audience. And uh, Denise Levertov has always also been a poet of, of music. She emphasizes music in the poem, the sound of the poem, the, the rhythm of the poem. Uh, all those items that, that make us appreciate the poem, feel the poem, and hear the poem, its tones and, and, and spectrum of sound, and arenas and places and moments where there's kind of little solos. And I think there's a solo in this poem. And I think it's a little bit after the middle of this poem where we begin to hear her voice and, and, the, and, the, and a particular new rhythm uh, uh, rise up, like a cadenza, like, like a solo. And, it, and it, it's almost, I think, iambic pentameter. You can hear the beat of the poem taking place uh, a little bit after the middle of the poem. So there's an acceleration and there is music, and it is public, and it involves response, and there's a conflict when she mentions the whole idea of sitting and walking and walking out. And all those questions that poets have that we're always concerned with, but we don't necessarily write about. And it's going to come out and, and snap at us in this, in this piece. And when she mentions, and as she goes through the, through the poem, she's going to mention Orangeburg. She's going to mention that before and after she wrote this poem, uh, certain protests took place. Even before the poem begins, she speaks about protests. And, and even after the poem ends, there is something else that's going to take place. So you see how, how the world that she's interested in, that we're all involved in, surrounds, or perhaps is the environment or the ecology for Denise Levertov. And this is her garden. We're going to say ecology. The poem is that garden, or is that kind of text. She talks about, the, uh, about Orangeburg, and I said, Orangeburg? And, but she's really talking about Orangeburg, the Orangeburg massacres in South Carolina where the highway patrol officers uh, uh, shoot and kill uh, black South Carolina uh, State University students. Uh, this is all about segregation in a bowling alley. Can you believe that? But, for, but it's, it's, it's what's going on in this time. And she's concerned about this. And she mentions this. And, and she's also going to talk about Jackson, uh, Mississippi, and what takes place there. And there's more killing. So 
so you can see uh, that this very quote-unquote day-to-day ordinary poem text with uh, the, the very fine voice of Denise Levertov really has a deep and loud resonance beyond the page in time, in culture, in the world of culture and power and race. So I'm very uh, pleased to have met her myself after Stanford in the late 90s. And she was just a few years from passing away, and I was so happy. I, was, I, almost, felt, I almost felt like I was standing before an angelic figure because of all the work she had done and all her concerns about humanity and her writing uh, nonstop, even though many around her and in her life circle had denied her and wanted to prevent her from writing political, quote-unquote, poems or poems that required engagement in society. And she refused. She would rather, she rather, she chose to break away from those relationships. And there's also a moment in this poem where there, uh, the, the green of, quote-unquote, the green of May is going to appear. And that's, that's most interesting. So this is something that you're going to have to think about. We're going to have to think about that color green. And the, that which is undeveloped, that which is going to grow. And that's also here. And there's a man that stands up. And there's women that walk out. And like I said, the ending will will say much to you. Uh, questions of religion, questions of protest, questions of what is sacred, questions of what is profane, questions of what a poem can do. And she herself says that she's interested in militant action, not just a memorial or flowery words, or words, period. And yet she's using words. So I, I present to you a most significant poet of the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, perhaps forecasting our experience today, 2022, what we find ourselves in, issues of race, power, violence, and war. So I present to you Denise Levertov reading her poem, The Day the Audience Walked Out on Me and Why. I like to feel that having been writing all my life, um, I have written a lot of different kinds of poems. Um, I like to feel free to um, have a certain uh, range. And uh, I'm going to read next uh, a rather different kind of poem. I don't feel that poems, my poems, um, anyway, 
fall into a really marked off categories um, they don't feel to me as if they do they seem to me to come out of the same sources and um, uh, to be written initially because I need to write them um, and part of my need to write because uh, I have always been interested in the in the art of poetry uh, is the need to to make things which which can stand free of me when made um, but uh, the same the same needs to to define my own to discover what I what I feel by saying it and um, to make things uh, can produce at different times very different styles of, of poetry and this one I think you'll uh, agree is, is rather different from what I just read it's one of a number of poems which uh, have dates attached to them really as parts of of their titles this one is called the day the audience walked out on me and why and it's dated <laughs> it's dated May 8th 1970 Goucher College Maryland which was the day before one of the big Washington demonstrations like this it happened after the antiphonal reading from the Psalms and the dance of lamentation before the altar and the two poems life at war and what were they like I began my rap and said yes it is well that we have gathered in this chapel to remember the students shot at Kent State but let us be sure we know our gathering is a mockery unless we remember also the black students shot at Orangeburg two years ago and Fred Hampton murdered in his bed by the police only months ago and while I spoke the people girls older women a few men began to rise and turn their backs to the altar and leave and I went on and said yes it is well that we remember all of these but let us be sure we know it is hypocrisy to think of them unless we make our actions their memorial actions of militant resistance by then the pews were almost empty and I returned to my seat and a man stood up in the back of the quiet chapel near the wide open doors through which the green of May showed and the long shadows of late afternoon and said my words desecrated a holy place and a few days later when some more students black were shot at Jackson Mississippi no one desecrated the white folks chapel because no memorial service was held
Let's talk about one of our incredible and great uh, Latinx poets, Lorna D. Cervantes. I met Lorna D. Uh, I think in 1974. I was in Mexico City with around 30 to 50 uh, political street theater groups, all the way from New York to the tip of uh, the, uh, the hemisphere, Chile. And uh, we all gathered in Mexico City. Uh, we wanted to have a, um, a national, international uh, conference and also a performance platform to see each other and learn from each other, have workshops for each other. And in that field, I, uh, in that arena, I met uh, Lorna. She wasn't in a theater troupe or a performance group, but she was a poet. And we just kind of magnetized toward each other and said hello. And we must have known a little bit about each other and said hello. So that was my first uh, contact with uh, Lorna D. And from there on, I, I, since I lived, sooner or later I lived and took a, a place to live in San Jose, California, which is where she lived. And I also lived in San Francisco, and we would both go to each other's uh, hometown and uh, talk about poetry, read poetry, and, and share the poems. When I would visit Lorna in San Jose, I noticed that she had her own, what she called a multi-lith offset printer. And though it was the kind of printer that, you know, prints in color and prints uh, little newsletters. And, and with Lorna, she worked it so she could actually create a very beautiful journal called Mango. And her press was called Mango Press. And it created really great journals, uh, groundbreaking journals with groundbreaking poets and artists. And, and so she also was a publisher and, of course, a poet. And I would have to say that Lorna de Cervantes is a very bold poet, a very daring poet, a poet that, that goes at subjects, uh, materials, experiences, events, uh, a universe that's almost untouched. In this case, she speaks uh, this poem uh, titled, From the Bus to E.L., at Atascadero State Hospital. That in itself is, is alarming. Being in a Greyhound bus or a passenger bus going to one of the major uh, state hospitals for the mentally troubled or in those days, mentally insane. That Those were the words, as you know, in the uh, 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Uh, there had been a reevaluation of those terms and of treating people with uh, mental disabilities or who had, or who had committed uh, sex crimes. So the poem treats, treats various levels. You know, one is the actual hospital, locked up, closed, tight environment, a nightmarish arena. And the other one is at the beginning of the poem where she speaks of the bato loco, the dude, or the crazy dude, or the street dude, or the gang dude, all those seem to be connected to the term bato loco, which really is a, also a friendly term. Hey, bato, eres un bato loco, you're a crazy dude. 
But you know, there's, there's friendship in that phrase as well. So it kind of touches on that at the beginning. And as we move through the poem, we begin to feel, uh, what is it? Danger? We begin to feel perhaps a sense of uh, uh, the non-exi- of non-existence or the uh, falling boundaries, the zones we are accustomed to feeling safe seem to be non-existence. Uh, Lorna mentions, the poem uh, mentions, uh, nowhere, this zone or place or arena or consciousness of being nowhere and, and uh, nothing uh, nothingness and nothing and nowhere and uh, nothing and nowhere. I mean, it comes up a number of times. So just thinking about nowhere and thinking about nothing as a repetitive experience or place uh, where we exist uh, is, 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 is quite a challenge to begin to describe. And then she continues to talk about the actual hospital. And in that hospital, there's a comatose woman. And it gets, we begin to enter that psyche of the irrational, of the locked up mad person, or of madness. So, so this is what we get to examine or maybe that word is too strong. Maybe this poem itself is an examination of madness or examination of that side of humanity that we never talk about or of society or of culture and power that we don't talk about. Who is is in those hospitals? Who is in that state hospital right now as we speak? Or do we have a diverse representation? She also talks about the institution of these hospitals. She mentions this, uh, I think once, one time, the institution uh, of our lives. And is it the hospital that she's mentioning? This is a good question for you. Is it um, our society that she's pointing to? That's another question. Is it, what else could it be? Is it who we are? <laughs> and and this, is, this is where Lorna, uh, her poetry and her way of writing excels. So we're faced with the question of structure, which society, we believe, provides. And we're also facing the notion of anti-structure, zones and arenas and places in society that break apart all order and, for the moment, insanity, chaos, rage, hate, murder, killing, death, in, in, in its shapeless forms, uh, dwells, and of being locked up not breathing, not being able to go anywhere, being nowhere. And we're also faced with perhaps the third possibility of being in a middle zone, not in a zone of of structure, 
not in a zone of total anti-structure, but perhaps in a middle arena or a middle um, passage where we can resist, where we actually can resist to uh, the, uh, the rage and the chaos and the madness and those tight spaces of hospitals and lockups, whether they're real or whether they're social, cultural, and made by power, relationships. And, and I think where she gives us a hint, and this is something to look for, is when she mentions the resistance. She mentions the term resistance. And what is being resisted? Um, perhaps it's death. But it seems, is it a weak resistance or is it a strong, triumphant resistance? That's up to... Um, that's up to us. So I think there's around three, uh, something to look at or look for, are these three uh, arenas in this poem of, uh, of structure. Structure itself, anti-structure itself, and then uh, resisting anti-structure, resisting madness. Is it the Vato Loco who's resisting? Is it the person in lockup at the state hospital resisting? Or is the poem the resistant, the, the force and the form of resistance? So I leave you with those thoughts, uh, and uh, I, I invite you to listen to Lorna's incredible poem, from the bus to El at Atascadero State Hospital. I guess I want to move to this uh, this other poem. Hmm. It's part of a new manuscript I've been working on for a number of years since Semplumada, uh, called Bird Avenue or Bird Ave. Um, I'll be telling you more about that title later on. Um, but uh, I, I did take about five years off of poetry. And uh, 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 part of the reason was uh, a, a trauma that happened in my family. My, my mother was murdered. Uh, she was murdered in a very uh, um, uh, traumatic uh, uh, way uh, while I was away at a poetry reading in uh, uh, Minneapolis. Um, uh, and it's like one night uh, or one day, you know, these sort of, uh, uh, you know, farm corn-fed, uh, you know, kids with straight teeth would be telling me, well, what is it like to live in the barrio? Aren't you afraid? <laughs> you know. Well, um, and then coming home uh, uh, and finding out that next morning my mother had been murdered in, Ovario, in the barrio in a, uh, one of those random acts of violence that you face every day um, uh, coming from a lower uh, economic class. I mean, that's the first thing you do when you get money, right? You know, you go and move to a safer neighborhood. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, because this happened when I was off on a reading tour and uh, uh, because of poems like that first one, uh, for example, it affected me and I stopped writing poetry for a number of years. And this was one of the first poems I wrote um, uh, after that. <clears throat> 
and I promise the mood's going to change. So let me just warn you, I figured maybe I'll just get rid of my bleak stuff right away. This is one of the bleakest poems I think I've ever written. And uh, also I kind of wanted to read it because it came out of a Greyhound bus trip. I'm getting ready to go back from uh, Flagstaff up to Denver. Uh, but I wrote this on the Greyhound bus passing the Atascadero State Hospital, which is where he was at, Edward Long. This is another Edward Long poem. Um, Atascadero State Hospital in California used to be called the Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And other than very, very poor people, such as Edward Long, also in there are your hardcore repeat sexual offenders. That's still what it's known as. Your hardcore sexual offenders in California get sent to Pascalero State Hospital. So this poem is sort of a combination of things. It's called From the Bus to E.L. Edward Long at Atascadero State Hospital. So it's to him. It's written to him. And at the same time, it was uh, on the occasion of uh, um, the death of a very close friend of mine uh, from a heroin overdose. Uh, um, uh, this was a guy, a vato loco from the barrio, who was a poet, a Chicano poet. It was just an incredible, intelligent uh, poet and uh, uh, had stayed off of heroin for 20 years. He was much older. Had stayed off of heroin for 20 years and then went back and died of an overdose. Um, uh, so all of these things were sort of working on my mind, and this is the poem. From the bus to E.L. at Atascadero State Hospital. Fall, peppercorns rouge into salmon row. The finished hills, blonde in califas, get crew cuts as cattle butch the hip grass into flat tops. Five o'clock shadows singe and vanquish without felling the scrub oaks and manzanita snarls. Dusted summer squash lays on the gone lawns. Ready pumpkins in the fields, bright as plastic and faceless, their time up, evident as flaring matches in the hole. There's a town coming on. It shows in the greyhound windows. The moon mounds instantly green, fence and civilize. They sat you here where you stuck like a poison dart between the idler bar and the mud hole mini mart. Small wonder, Vato. You envisioned your Jupiter scapes here in these Martian landings. What messages they blew to this world, the seeds of something generative. Some day, you said, they would blow us both away. There was a code to be read in the nothing of an empty page. There was a plan to the shambles of sage on the rocks or the bumbling kooks on the blocked streets, the nothing of a stranger who refuses to give, the nothing of a television mouthing nothing to a nothing house full of nothing like on the morning they locked you up 
for good. You were here, Ed, and there's nothing here. Moonscapes, desert wastes. As it is in this light, the eyes read but register nothing. Cables and telephone trees, white fences, the immovable air vanishing on the nude hips of comatose women. Is this what you saw? Nothing in the hedges, the chopped ends, the panicking roads where nothing is distanced between ourselves and an abundance of nowhere. The institutions of our lives embed themselves in the shallows like the clumped row houses of Camp Roberts, the wooden graves of the suicidal dead, or the wars where they laid you to rest, resisting. And you, you could have gone on to King City or the Temple of Angels. Instead, you were here, where the wounded blackbirds warble jazz to a crazed wind where the dusk is as pure and unanimical as law, devious as treaties. A substance fills the night, the absence of light with whatever we imagine. Think of it, space trips, vato, loco of the stars. This is what you get in this life the lockdown of nothing. I'm really excited to read you a recent poem. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, now that I think about it, it's kind of connected to my, you know, my love for Denise Levertov's work and also my friendship with Lorna D. Cervantes and the kind of work she does. Uh, you know, it's the the whole notion of being a writer and what what it is that we do and what is our vision. And as you know, uh, Denise Levertov, her vision was one of humanity, one of compassion, one of action, protest, which I value very much. I grew up in that generation, and I think all of us uh, agree with, with uh, Denise Levertov in many ways. And Lorna D. Uh, being so concerned about her role as writer, and of course the women in her family, and being uh, in an urban, uh, in a world. And this poem, uh, which is titled "For George Floyd, Was a Great Man," you know, I want to honor the life of George Floyd. I want to talk about violence. I want to talk about humanity. I want to talk about life and death and war and peace. Uh, especially today with uh, what's happening in uh, Ukraine and what Russia is doing to the to the people of Ukraine. Very concerned about that. I know you are too. And I came to this poem through um, kind of an interesting channel, through the work of Christopher Smart in the 1700s, uh, with uh, with the poem that he wrote. Uh, 
kind of talking about his cat, Jeffrey. Of course, he was talking about something much larger while he was in, incarcerated or in a mental asylum. I guess that's what they called him then, or an asylum for the insane. And strangely enough, it's a beautiful poem as well. Uh, I'm not going to judge that, you know. Let's accept our poetry. And it was written in the 1700s. And it was written in a uh, biblical psalm voice when you're reading the psalms. And uh, the title of his poem was uh, relating to the, uh, to the Lamb of God. Uh, and Jubilate Agno. That's, it's in Latin. Trying to, trying to remember it, <laughs> grasp it. And in this case, you know, I, I'm focusing on, on humanity. You know, I'm focusing, like I said, uh, let's, let's be human beings. Let's be part of every human being. Let's be that human being too. You know, the separation, segregation, racism, sexism, transphobia, on and on. Every day we get more separated. And let's get more united. Let's be more harmonious. And let's be uh, makers of peace. Not racism or war or death or killing. And that's the spirit in which I wrote this poem. For George Floyd was a great man. For he was a wandering lamb, trapped and lured toward the flames. For the flames were cast upon him, for they would seal his story. For he was taken down, face down, body down, to account. For his soul stood up and hearkened the chariot song descending. For he pleaded as the fiery metals coiled upon his ebony skin. For he was our renaissance, our thirst, our vessel for freedom. For it is said he was our father, our son, our symbol, our body. For a choir assembled on the streets in every furnace of witness, for he called upon his mother as he called upon the source. For he was not your Negro. He was not your black cut down. For he was the ancestral ship burning through maps and chains. For he was the future. No one had prophesied the now, the is, for he was taken in the evening as we noticed the power remain. Thank you, everyone. And I thank the Poetry Center so much and you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Juan Felipe, for sharing your insight and experience with us. Listeners, whether this is the first episode you've heard or the dozenth, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. 
We are so excited to say that VOCA has recently received a fabulous new interface, thanks to the hard work of our colleagues at U of A's College of Humanities. We invite you to check it out and share it with a friend. Individual tracks can now be easily shared, and there are new ways to browse the readings, such as year by year. We also offer our heartfelt congratulations to Ada Lamone, who just became the new U.S. Poet Laureate. She hosted an episode for us in season one that's fantastic, and you can also find two recordings by her on VOCA. Two weeks from today, we hope you will join us for an episode hosted by J.D. Pluker. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Poetry Centered is a project of the University of Arizona Poetry Center, home to a world-class library collection of more than 80,000 items related to contemporary poetry in English and English translation. Located on the campus of the University of Arizona in Tucson, the Poetry Center library and buildings are housed on the indigenous homelands of the Tohono O'odham and Pascua Yaqui people. Poetry Centered is the work of Sarah Jemsky, that's me, and Julie Swarstead Johnson. Explore VOCA, the Poetry Center's audiovisual archive, online at voca.arizona.edu.